I harbor no ill will towards people who don't know that this publication existed. Most people were very young who, who are now working in the field. But it launched in early 98 and it had a rough first year because it was very expensive but out a weekly magazine uh, and for the first year we couldn't sell a lot of advertising and you know subscriptions were a difficult business that we had a very loyal following initially but by late 98 early 99 we hit a tipping point and the magazine which had been on average 64 72 pages uh, ballooned and by the end of 99 was on average 300 pages a week. Our website had something like four or five million uh, unique visitors a month, which at the time was pretty significant. We had a conference business that was going bananas. There was a point at which we couldn't put all the ads in the magazine that people ordered because we just didn't have the manpower. And in the year 2000, the publication became the largest publication in the history of magazine publishing uh, in terms of ad pages. We had the most ad pages in a single year in a publication in the history of publishing. And I think that record will never fall because, you know, we, we know what's happened to magazine publishing since <laughs> the Internet happened to it. Sure, this is a podcast about the internet. So why should we care about the largest publication in the history of magazine publishing? Well, that publication was all about the internet. Kind of a fun paradox, right? The largest magazine in history was all about the thing that was going to basically kill magazines. The publication was called The Industry Standard, and the man you just heard talking about it was its founder, John Battelle. Are you ready to hear the story? Let's get dialed in. Hi there, welcome to Webmasters. I'm your host, Aaron Dinan. I'm a serial entrepreneur and I teach entrepreneurship at Duke University. This is the podcast that explores entrepreneurship by talking with some of the internet's most impactful and influential innovators. That's unquestionably what we've got on this episode with our guest, John Battelle. When you read stories about the cast of characters propelling the early web to meteoric growth, and epic collapse, you'll surely encounter his name. He was at the helm of the Industry Standard, the most influential publication focused on the fast-growing web in the late 1990s. If you were in the internet industry, you knew it, you read it, and if you were a great internet business, you even got to advertise in it. And hey, that's true for this podcast too, because, well, we've got a great advertiser sponsoring this episode. Let me tell you all about it. Webmasters is being brought to you thanks in part to the generous support of our incredible sponsor, Latonas. Latonas is a boutique mergers and acquisitions broker that helps people buy and sell cash flow positive internet businesses and digital assets. That includes things like e-commerce stores, SaaS apps, Amazon FBAs, domain portfolios, content networks, and pretty much any other type of online work from anywhere internet business. If you currently own a profitable internet business and you're thinking of selling it, be sure to contact the team at Latonas. They can tell you everything you need to know about the process. And if you'll let them, they'll be able to help you get a great, great price. 
Alternately, if you're looking to buy a cash flow positive internet business, then head on over to the Latona's website where you'll find their current listings of companies for sale. And be sure to subscribe to their newsletter too, so you get updates when new listings are added. That website is latonas.com. L-A-T-O-N-A-S.com. In a lot of ways, this episode of Webmasters is kind of a meta episode, which is just like the company it's featuring. By that I mean, normally we focus on tech companies and or the innovative tech our guests created, but this episode's guest, John Battelle, didn't really create any sort of innovative new technology. If anything, it was the opposite. John Battelle's The Industry Standard marked the last of the big print magazines before the internet came along and made magazines, if not obsolete, then certainly less relevant in mainstream media culture, which is of course funny because the magazine was about the booming internet. But still, just because the topic of this episode isn't a traditional tech company, I'd say it's still appropriate to call John a successful tech entrepreneur. I don't reject the title entrepreneur in a wholesale way, but I, I find that it comes with too much baggage. I guess what I do is I start companies in areas where there isn't something that I very much want to either read or watch or see or see done. And it turns out that the best way to make that thing happen is to start the company as opposed to do anything else. I started as a journalist. I've always been involved in journalism. And I think that's probably, if you look at the last portion of my career, probably where I'll go back to. Uh, But for now, I think the answer is I'm the co-founder of companies. So far, that number is seven tech-related media companies and counting, but he's a different kind of tech entrepreneur than most of our guests because he wasn't obsessed with using computers or building things with them or finding new ways to leverage them. Instead, he was focused on what I describe as a more humanist aspect of computers. My experience with computers definitely predates networking, you know, internetworking, I guess you could say. I started uh, playing around with them when I was in middle school in the 70s, when my mother, who was a teacher, got an Apple II, uh, which is one of the first mass-produced personal computers. And I found them to be very fascinating, not in the way that a lot of traditional technology founders find them. It's just they get obsessed with programming them. Um, I was obsessed with what you could do with them. And at that time, it was pretty limited. You could write, you could do math, you could print things. But I just found all that fascinating. And I did some minor scripting and programming in high school as the PC became kind of a thing in the late 70s, early 80s. But it was really in college that I got, I guess, the uh, contextual awareness of what the impact of that tool, the computer, was going to be on our society. So what was your relationship with computers in college? Because you weren't a computer science major or anything like that, right? It was really in college that I found the... I guess, the contextual framework for how I've thought about computing ever since, um, which is anthropological. Computers as a tool, as an expression of culture, as an artifact worthy of study. And it was combining that anthropological framework with a career in journalism that kind of led to most of my career. As soon as I saw a Macintosh in 1984, Having been an Apple user with the Apple IIc, I realized that this tool was going to change everything. 
And that's kind of classic joints after midnight, you know, sophomore at UC Berkeley. Whoa, man, it's going to be huge. Not many people really understood why I was so on about it. You know, most of my friends just thought it was an interesting little tool or a little toy. But for me, one of the things that made it particularly interesting was the fact that you could use a modem to connect to other things. So I, I was increasingly assessed with this tool, this plasticity of this tool, the ease with which you could use it. And with the fact that if you use this other tool at the time, a modem, which now people don't really know what that is, but at the time it was another tool you had to master in order to connect to other people. When you put those two things together, it struck me that how we communicated, the kind of media we made, and since media shapes culture, the culture we lived in uh, was going to change dramatically. So I became somewhat obsessed during college with those ideas. How did those interests shape your career path after college? When I left college, I took the first internship I could find that put me in direct contact with the Macintosh, which was for a startup magazine that covered Apple as a trade magazine. The only time I've really held a job <laughs> was when I worked at this magazine for two or three years probably a few months after it launched until it got pretty big um, and it was the biggest trade magazine covering Apple. Then I went back to grad school in order to hone the skills of journalism to tell the story much more broadly because the things that I was writing as a, as a reporter covering Apple, my parents had no idea what I was talking about, right? Because it was mostly inside baseball feeds and speeds and, you know, databases and networking and uh, graphical user interfaces and, you know, terminology that uh, only people inside the computing industry really understood. And uh, I wanted to write the story that I was increasingly convinced, this is now about 1989, that I was convinced was going to change everything, which was how technology and the artifacts and the tools of technology intersect with culture and society. It struck me that we had plenty of academic framework for understanding that, but we had not applied that to what was clearly the most potent set of tools we've ever made, which was computing devices and networks later became known colloquially as the internet. I was pretty obsessed with it. So I decided to go back to UC Berkeley to get my master's degree in journalism and uh, focus my work on understanding technology. So I'm a humanist by training. My degrees are English literature, uh, meaning I agree with everything you're saying. But I guess what I want to understand is why you thought this stuff was going to change everything. And why does that matter? Or should it even matter? And, and why did you feel the need to tell people about it? I mean, one of the things that animates journalists uh, and journalism is big stories, right? Journalists love covering big stories. What animated me was when there was a really big story that no one was paying attention to. <laughs> that was technology, right? Uh, now, it's not fair to say no one was paying attention to the technology story in the late 80s uh, and early 90s. They were, but they weren't paying attention to it. And this is where the arrogance of journalists or authors sort of comes to the fore. They weren't paying attention to it in the right way. <laughs> Time Magazine made the computer the man of the year sometime in the mid-80s. I can't remember when, maybe it was mid to late 80s. But the obsession was on the use of computers in school, in work, 
you know, how computers were this thing that was going to make us all a little better, a little faster, how the industry had interesting and furry characters in it who, you know, were iconoclastic and weird. There was very little writing in the popular press or certainly coverage on television that got into the way it was going to change the fabric of our society. Not around the edges, not how cool it would be when, as Bill Gates was saying at the time, every desk had a computer on it, right? It was like, no, what's going to really change in our systems? What's going to change in our educational system? What's going to change in the way that we react and interact with each other? What's going to change in how we govern each other, how governments interact with each other, what kind of culture we actually make? And those questions weren't really being raised in any specific or structured way. Why did you choose the format of a magazine as a way to explore those questions? At the time, now we're getting into 1990, 91. The only way I knew to investigate that story in that framework was to make a publication that adopted that story in that framework, right? And we won't dwell on this because I know you have other guests who are focused on Wired, but it was when I ran into and joined the sort of initial merry band of crazy people who started Wired, the five of us, that we got a chance to truly, you know, litigate the argument that technology was changing the world dramatically. And the early Wired, the first three, four, five years of Wired was just an explosion of possibility and an exploration of possibility in the impact of technology on society. And that framed my career, you know, for the next 30 years. Were you listening closely? If you were, you just heard John talking about not the industry standard, but another famous tech-focused print publication, Wired Magazine. John was actually one of the founding editors of Wired, so before he built the industry standard into the preeminent print publication discussing the internet, he was helping lead the preeminent print publication about technology. However, as good as Wired was at exploring technology as a whole, John believed it wasn't giving enough attention to the internet. When I was at Wired, um, I was managing editor, so I was responsible for all the editorial day to day. But I was also responsible in a sort of strange way for uh, business development. And that meant imagining other things that we might do with the Wired brand besides just the magazine. Initially, that was an online presence, obviously, uh, which became Hotwired and search engines and other things. But also just, you know, talking to the big partners who we might work with for our content at the time. They were AOL, CompuServe, Prodigy, now long forgotten, except for AOL, (laughs) forgotten, but very important back then. And it's where I started understanding the business piece around computing and the internet. And I had a business sensibility because I'd been in the trade world covering the business of computers, Apple and other related vendors around the Apple ecosystem. So about four years into Wired, obviously we were covering the internet, every aspect of it from 1993 to 1997. And in 1997, I thought not being covered properly, was being misunderstood, was being overhyped and underinvestigated. Uh, and in particular, the place that was getting the least amount of scrutiny was the intersection of the internet with business. And what made you feel that way? 
recall where we are now in the late 90s, the internet boom, the first internet boom was just getting underway. A bunch of entrepreneurs were starting companies based on the ability to put a web page up, you know, and you had Excite and you had Yahoo and you had Amazon and Google. All of those companies got their start in 96, 97, 98. And there was a flurry of coverage about them, but it was all hype and bullshit to my mind. You know, it was all, wow, look at those crazy kids in California doing this crazy stuff. And wow, isn't that neat? And it was being treated like a toy and it was being hyped. And uh, it struck me that a new industry was being born uh, and it needed to be covered as an industry. And because it wasn't just a vertical industry that was going to, you know, sort of become whatever, gas and oil or travel and leisure or retail, it was going to touch all of those industries. Every one of them is going to be massively remade by this set of technologies that there needed to be a magazine uh, and a website at that point was obvious. You had to do both at the same time that covered this story with the fundamental principles of journalistic inquiry which were essentially being abandoned by almost all journalistic organizations. When they covered the internet, it's like they threw the rule book out. They've become incredibly sycophantic and slavish and, and, and just gee whiz, you know? And, and it's like, no, 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 no. This is all awesome stuff. I, I'm the biggest cheerleader in the world, but there's a lot of bullshit and there are a lot of hustlers and there's a lot of stuff that is shady here. And no matter what, power needs to be held to account. And there is clearly a lot of power here. So how did that turn into an idea for a new magazine? So I came up with this idea for a weekly news magazine that was sort of a combination of The Economist and Variety, right? So The Economist piece was we're going to take sort of this journalistic, long-form approach to covering uh, important topics. And Variety is that we're going to have sort of the trade dress and the speed and the inside kind of wink-wink that Variety has for the movie industry, right? And I pitched that inside at Wired. And, and the truth is, my co-founders were like, John, that's a really awesome idea. And we think that should exist in the world, but it's just not cool enough. <laughs> to, you know, Wired was just such a cool brand and uh, it was just not cool enough. And I'm like, yeah, but I just really want to read this. I really want to do this. And, and, you know, some things aligned. And I got a phone call from a fellow who ran at the time, one of the most powerful trade uh, publishing empires in the world, International Data Group, IDG. And he's like, hey, I need somebody to run a weekly trade magazine about the internet. And I said, I'll tell you what, I'll run a weekly about the internet, but let's not make it a trade magazine. Let's make it this new form of journalism that I want to apply that, that isn't all about feeds and speeds and you know the vendors and that whole classic trade magazine formula, but rather let's make it a truly credible journalistic enterprise that at some point can go on and try to compete with business week or the economist and he took a flyer on me uh, and that's how the industry standard started i've realized the industry standard was huge in its day but of course a lot of people don't really remember it now could you maybe explain what kind of stories it was covering and why it was such a big deal yeah it's funny because not many people do i harbor no ill will towards people who don't know that this publication existed most people were very young who who are now working in the field but what the magazine did is chronicle the narrative of the business story on the internet during a really important formative period the period where amazon and google rose to prominence the period where uh, we explored Almost every business model that exists today on the internet was explored in the late 90s 
most of them were not ready for prime time because the consumer behavior had not gotten to the point of adoption that it has now. The technology stack was not robust enough to support many of the attempts, for example, to deliver groceries to your door, right? That requires a incredible set of infrastructural changes that had not happened by the year 2000, 2001, but obviously have happened in the year 2020 or 2021. And so there were these companies that on the promise of doing that, on the promise of delivering groceries to everyone's door, had gone public and had become worth billions of dollars. And then in the recession of 2001, the dot-com crash, all of these companies were essentially wiped out, including mine. But it was this crazy gold rush moment and everyone wanted to buy a ticket to the show. And if you were in the show, uh, in other words, if you had a company or a bank or a service firm, like a law firm or an investment bank or an executive recruiting firm, everyone wanted a ticket into the show. Everyone wanted to play. It was the hot space for four years or so. And the way you could demonstrate you had a ticket to the show was to buy an ad in our magazine. And that doesn't happen very often. <laughs> it just doesn't. You know, you cannot manufacture that moment out of your own sheer will. You simply happen to be paddling around in a set of waves where you were in the right place to ride it for a while. Uh, and if you were not a complete inathletic idiot, you could stay on the board for a while and it would be a great ride. And that's what the industry standard was uh, for me and for the hundreds of people that worked with us. And so why couldn't it keep going after the crash? Because, of course, there were still plenty of stories to tell after the crash, right? In fact, probably even more important stories to tell. There were two or three factors of more important stories to tell, right? Like exponentially more important stories to tell by 2003, 4, 5. You know, there's a meta answer to that and that there's a specific answer to that. The specific has to do with the specifics of the ownership of our company and, you know, the board meetings we had in, in early 2001 and the white night offers we had from financiers to get us over the bridge of the dot-com crash that were rejected by our majority ownership. And I won't get into all of that. Suffice to say, it could have gotten through, but it didn't for various reasons, some of which I completely own, some of which I lay at the feet of others. But the narrative never stopped. And for me in my career, you know, after going through what was an incredibly difficult period, right? So I was the CEO and founder of a really successful thing that everyone in the industry at least knew about. And, you know, I was seen as sort of one of the cast of characters in this great new story. And I think generally seen approvingly to then when we closed shop, the New York Times wrote an obituary for the magazine. The Wall Street Journal wrote a front page TikTok story about how we fell apart, right? And McNeil Lair wants me to come on to explain why the internet is over because I'm the poster child for it, right? To go through that, uh, you know, it's bad enough to have to tell you hundreds of employees they don't have jobs to go through sort of the personal depression, shame involved in failure, uh, but to also have to do it so publicly. That was rough. But you've done a lot since then too, right? So if you don't mind me asking, how'd you come back from what was, a, I guess, a highly public collapse? The thing that got me back was going back to my roots, which was a journalist covering a narrative 
and realized that that narrative wasn't over. As a matter of fact, that narrative was completely building. The narrative really did not care that most of the media had decided the internet had its moment and it was over, which is exactly how the media felt about the internet in 2001, 2002. The internet really didn't give a shit about that narrative. The internet just kept growing and broadband penetration started to increase to the point where some of the dreams of the late 90s entrepreneurs became technically feasible. And the more broadband, the more innovative technologies that were layered into the internet stack. By 2003, we had the rise of Ajax, which was a set of protocols that allowed for true customer interaction on the web browser. And that laid bare the potential to do e-commerce at scale, to do communications applications at scale in a way that were frankly just impossible in the late 90s. And that to me was like, okay, there's a really big story here. And I was motivated by telling it again. So here again, John turns back to an old technology to tell the story of a new technology. He writes a book, and it focuses on exactly what he'd been thinking about since childhood, which is to say it's not a book about a specific technology. Instead, it's a book about the implications of that new technology. I found a company or two that I thought were reflective of that story. And I just started calling people there, going there, talking to them. And the company turned out to be Google. And so I wrote a book about the rise of Google and, and it happened to be well-timed because it came out right after the IPO. And that book shot to the bestseller list and you know was published in 25 countries and blah, 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 blah. The book is called The Search, how Google and its rivals rewrote the rules of business and transformed our culture. Oh, and the blah, 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 blah John uses to describe it is a modest way of saying that his book is often mentioned as one of the best business books ever written. When it was published back in 2005, it completely transformed the way many people thought about internet culture and how its new business models would likely impact the world. 15 years later, we can look back on John's insights and see how prescient they were. It's even a bit creepy, actually. In addition to the book, John started blogging, a choice which ultimately led him to his next major venture. I had started a blog to sort of think out loud about the things I was considering as I wrote this book about search and about Google. And that blog went to the moon for a year or two with 300,000 readers a month. And that's how many readers I had at the Industry Standard. And here it was just me just writing whatever was on my mind every morning. And I thought, okay, the mechanics of media are shifting in a really interesting and important way. My site is a reflection of that, but I'm not an isolated case. There were people all over the world who were doing exactly what I was doing um, and who had interesting and similar backgrounds. Uh, one was an investment research guy who had, you know, kind of crashed during the uh, dot-com crash. That turned out to be Henry Blodgett, who started Business Insider. One was a guy who was a beat reporter covering uh, a bunch of these stories. That turned out to be O'Malley. Another was a group of friends who were finding really interesting, weird stuff on the internet. And that turned out to be Boing Boing. Another was a woman who uh, was just chronicling her parenting stress. And that turned out to be Deuce, which is one of the largest mommy bloggers in the world. All of these folks are doing this just by themselves. And I have a business background, I have a publishing background, I have a media background. They're all going to want to do this as they're living. But nobody who creates 
wants to spend 80% of their time selling ads, setting up websites, doing analytics, you know, making advertisers happy, worrying about traffic acquisition, like all the things that you need to worry about if you're actually running an internet site. I understood how to do that. So that's when I came up with the idea at the same time I was writing a book of starting another company called Federated Media, which would bring all of these sites together, sort of a school of fish that looks like a whale uh, at a time when the whales were starting to take over the world, right? You know, AOL was huge. Excite was huge. Yahoo was huge. Google was huge. You know, Amazon was huge. And I thought, you know, there needs to be a collection of independent voices who thrive because they federate together. And that was the next company idea. For the better part of a decade, Federated Media was a successful ad network for independent publishers online, aka bloggers, who were basically ushering in the age of social media. Plus, at the same time as he was writing a bestseller and building a huge ad network, John was also running one of the most popular and important web industry conferences. In many of my conversations, I think probably for the book, I went up to see my friend Tim O'Reilly. That would be the Tim O'Reilly, founder of the popular tech publishing company O'Reilly Media. If you're in the tech industry, you've probably seen some of their books before. They usually include a distinctive woodcut of an animal on the front cover. And Tim was just a super smart guy who had started a computer book publishing company, you know, how to do this, how to code HTML, how to JavaScript, blah, 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 blah. And he had this idea for a conference and I had run conferences. And so we went into business together to do a conference that we called Web 2.0. And that became a big deal too. So like in 2005, I did three things at the same time and they all worked. And I would never suggest anyone do that <laughs> because it's exhausting, but it was super fun at the same time because they all kind of were interwoven and they all were about the same story, right? That was a great run from sort of 2003 to 2012 the rise of Web2, the rise of independent publishing uh, through blogs, which really was the first version of social media, and the rise of an industry which coalesced around this event, which we called Web2L. So once again, I was fortunate to be kind of in the thick of yet another cycle in the technology story. So if you don't mind me asking, what does that story look like now? We could talk for hours about Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, and where those platforms might go, but I'll just leave with a prediction of sorts, which is they're all going away and they are ephemeral. Everyone thinks that the tech giants are forever and now we need to legislate them out of existence and you know they're screwing us up and blah, 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 blah. And I've been leading the chorus in that in various ways over the past 10 years. But the truth is, the technological changes that are germinating at the moment when combined, because people forget that they combine. It's not just 5G. It's not just blockchain. It's not just AR, VR in the metaverse. Come on, Mark. It's all of them together and the things that people will do with them that are contrary to the core business models of the current giants. That's what's going to wipe out the current reigning champs of technology. It's inevitable to my mind that they will be irrelevant within a generation it's built into how they make their money they will argue with me on this if they care to argue and they don't but i'm convinced of it who's telling that story now the story you were trying to tell with the internet standard i mean or is it finally just the mainstream press because tech is well mainstream 
Yeah, I think the latter. I wouldn't name one particular branded publication as carrying the banner, so to speak. I mean, Wired still exists. I'm very proud of that. It's still a very good magazine, and I'm very glad that it is still thriving. There really isn't anything like the industry standard extant today, and the main reason is is because we are still in the media industry in a landscape that is incredibly fractured, actually happily fractured, while at the same time beholden to massive media platforms which have made a living pretending that they're not media platforms. You know, Facebook, Google, Amazon, Apple, uh, all pretending they're not media companies when they have captured the essence of what makes media work, which is the attention and engagement of audiences without honoring the work of a publisher, which is to manage and respect the relationships between advertisers, audiences, and brands. And I think the loss of that has been expressed in many, many ways. One of them is the rise of the Substack. One of them is the rise of podcasting and the rise of documentary filmmaking. And then ancillary or related portion of this in the non-journalistic world is the rise of scripted television, the rise of high quality independent production outfits that can make whatever they want and sell it. You know, that's awesome. The creator economy, which kind of makes me want to throw up in my mouth. Not that I don't think it's a good idea. It's just, it's always been so. It's always been so that creators make and they look for ways to connect that to people who care about it. That's hello. You know, I mean, what's a publication, but an organized way to get creators work out into the world. Right. And there will always be new organizational structures to get creators work into the world. And that generally speaking, I call those organizations, media companies, call me old fashioned, but that's what they are. And I think we have lost something in the last 10 or so years in the rise of the Facebooks and the Googles and the Amazons. And that is the, brand that a media company makes this this thing that holds a community together and makes them feel like they're all part of something and you see it emerging in lots of places a lot of email newsletter driven stuff right so it's not like it's dead but the moment where a particular publication can capture the imagination of an entire generation or industry or segment of the population I think that moment may have passed. Well, from the mouth of the person who created one of the last great industry publications, the days of mega media brands, at least the ones that acknowledge themselves as such, are dead. And hey, at least according to John, it's the death of those brands that have given rise to podcasts, like, you know, this one you just finished listening to. Call me biased, but I think that's a good thing. I hope you do too, which means now that we're coming to the end of John's story and the story of the industry standard, I hope you'll take a moment to tell the world by leaving us a nice review on your podcasting app of choice and sharing this episode with a friend. And while you're at it, make sure you're subscribed to Webmasters so you get the next episode as soon as it's released. 
I want to thank John Patel for spending a bit of time talking with me. If you'd like to keep up with his thoughts on the ever-evolving story of the internet, you can follow him on Twitter. He's at John Patel. He's also still blogging, though less regularly, over at patelmedia.com. This podcast is on Twitter too. We're at Webmasters Pod, and I'm on Twitter at Aaron Dinan. That's A-A-R-O-N-D-I-N-I-N. If you'd like more content about startups and entrepreneurs, you can also check my website, AaronDinan.com. You can even sign up for my newsletter there, since, you know, according to John, that's a new and important thing. Thanks to our audio engineer, Ryan Higgs, for helping pull this episode together. And thanks to our sponsor, Latonas, for all their amazing support. Remember, if you're in the market to buy or sell an internet business, be sure to visit latonas.com. That's all for this episode. We'll be back again with more Webmasters. It's coming soon, I promise. But for now, well, I guess it's time for me to sign off. Goodbye. Goodbye.